Um, most of us in conditions of which we had no real experience. Um, we were fortunate and unfortunate. We were fortunate in the sense that, that we were going well in the race with a moderately, relatively bigger, bigger boat and we rounded the fastest rock just on the stroke of midnight <coughs> and it really was an awesome sight uh, because the fastest rock has um, a small rock in shore of it about a quarter of a mile which is a very small distance at sea and we went between those between the main fastness rock and this rock on our land side and there was absolute white foam on the third night awakened by fright its temper indeed it was high the wall of sea had greeted me We were out about two hours and a half before the call came in from the fastness race, whether the galleys was lost or other. We were in search of another boat that lost her lights. So when we got the call, we were in the cape, and we headed away for, for the first call. But before that, the other boat, another boat the, off the old head, it can sail 15 miles over the old head, the wild goose, she got into trouble, lost her other as well. She was the first call we got. So we transferred her to Court and Sherry Lifeboat and we went for the regalis. The conditions were very rough because the lifeboat was cold in water nearly all the time. She was always nearly, she was washed nearly from start to finish. And um, the big problem, like, was in the towing because we used to part with her for it, to re-catch her up again, to put the rope aboard her, and to make fast to her again because she was going all over the place without any rudder. She used to even pass us at times. The driving was fantastic because they had very high seas, and I remember one particular incident where I was up in the bow throwing out the tow line, and the lifeboat came down off a wave and coming down, and it was the first time in my sort of experience where I unclipped my safety harness with the idea that I may have to jump on the lifeboat. But she basically reversed completely backwards up the, up the wave, and this is the coxswain's maneuverability with running the engines. We parted with her five times on our way back to Baltimore. She, we burst a new manila rope, two and a half inch manila rope, an island. But we had to take her five times before we got to get her to Baltimore. So when landing her in Baltimore, we had to go back for to pick up another one, the marionette. And we picked her up 25 miles south of Galley Head. 
and also taught her to Baltimore. In all, we were about 20 trios and the one service. We left cows in the Isle of Wight, it being our third year. Will we ever forget the storm we met, which introduced us to fear? The lifeboats and their crewmen, we never can repay. Their reckless fight that August night, when Neptune got his way. Four Irish lifeboats spent a total of 74 hours at sea and saved 45 lives between them when the 28th Fastnet Yacht Race hit disaster in August of 1979. Mick O'Connell, whom you've just heard describing the scene that night, was the mechanic of the Baltimore lifeboat based in West Cork. Another of the lifeboats at sea that night came from Ballycotton in East Cork, the station which carried out the most famous rescue in Irish lifeboat history, when the Daunt Rock light vessel, protecting the entrance to Cork Harbour, broke from her moorings with eight men aboard. For 63 hours, the lifeboatmen fought mountainous seas, gale force winds, rain and sleet, and as the lightship crew abandoned their vessel and it threatened to capsize on top of them, the Ballycotton men moved in and rescued all eight. Donny O'Sullivan, Ballycotton Station Secretary, recalls that rescue. Well, Ballycotton is very famous as regards the lifeboat and one of the most famous rescues in the history of the institution was the Daunt Rock way back in 1936. Bob Manny was secretary at that time and uh, Patsy Sliney was coxswain of the lifeboat then and he was interviewed afterwards and he said that time that the Ballycotton lifeboat should get a gold medal rather than himself, that she was so seaworthy. On the night of 11th of February, 1936, we, we had a, a terrible storm here in Ballycotton. So we steamed out close to the lightship. In the meantime, the Arsalem was after coming on the scene. While we were on passage out, the foremost of the two red lights was blown out. So I says, if the other one goes away, we won't be able to find the lightship, never mind nothing else. The skipper of the Arsala seen that just as well as us. I said to him, what about taking them off? So he said, right, carry on. So we watched the chance and we came along and tubing jumped straight away, came around again and got no one the next time. So the, on the third occasion, we got two. And the next time then, we were two. There was two of the crew then. And they seemed to have a hold of the rail and wouldn't let go. So I ordered some of our own crew to go forward and to try to gas them and call them aboard. West of Cork Harbour, the Lusitania was torpedoed off the old head of Kinsale in 1915. The Court McSherry lifeboat, then a rowing and sailing vessel, went to the rescue. At 93, Jerry Murphy is the last surviving member of that crew. The lifeboat was here down that time, down here and further down on the, the point here. Well, it took us a good bit to go that distance, you know. There is eight miles from this to the old head. And we had to go close to that because she was, she was going down south-southwest from the old head. So that was a good long way east in the bay. And we had to go 
Eight miles then beyond the old head before we come into the wreck. The first, the first thing we met was uh, a fisherman from the west there. He was out spillering, Madden. He was towing in a, one of the lifeboats half of the Lucity, half of the boat, half the Lusitania, and there were about 50 fifty in there that was taken in this lifeboat. And he was trying to tow him into court, Sharia. When we arrived, we met him, we spoke to him, but he wouldn't give him up at all. The secretary was in the boat with us, and he said, we take these, but he said himself to get him into court, Sharia, to go away out, and they are... They all screeched to us to go away with there were plenty more outside. So we went away out then and the next thing we met was a man and he drowned. He was a traveller. So we picked him up the when we got out then it was nothing but all dead bodies floating around. So we were taking him up as good as we could and uh, putting him aboard the fishing boat that was there. The fishing, two fishing boats that were around the place, they came in and they were, they had their boat out picking up the dead. So we wouldn't have much room for people because they say we were taking him up and putting him aboard this boat. They were from Cork. So when it got dark, then them boats wouldn't stop there anymore for the fear they'd run into a wreck or anything and get wrecked themselves. So when it was getting dark, they went away. And we had to give over then too. But the, all the place was covered with corpse floating. The Royal National Lifeboat Institution was founded in England in 1824 and based its first lifeboat in this country at Arklow in 1826, but there had been lifeboats before that, in Dublin Bay controlled by the Ballast Board and under local control in Kinsale. An early lifeboat base was Dunlera, where the RNLI suffered its worst Irish disaster on Christmas Eve 1895 when the 15-man crew of the local sailing lifeboat drowned in a capsize while trying to help a Finnish vessel. There have been 17 capsizes of Irish lifeboats and 37 lifeboatmen have given their lives in the service of others. Well, my people uh, are in the lifeboat service since 1887. My great-grandfather was captain in 1887. So there's been McLaughlin's connected to the to the service ever since. That's a long ways back. As a wife of a coxswain of any lifeboat, I think sometimes we say to ourselves, and at, at times we say, "Well, are we married to a man or married to a lifeboat?" Because we're totally involved as well. I see. I mean, if I'm here, that somebody has to answer the phone all the time, and uh, not so much left out. I mean, you can imagine if you're going out for an evening and uh, you're just getting ready to go out for a meal and meet your friends and all of a slap, there's a lifeboat call. I don't start to mind it if we're already reached our destination and we're in the hotel or in the, the room where the function is or something. I'm already there, but like to walking out the door and then to be left while he runs to the lifeboat. 
Well, most of these lads have uh, shore jobs, in fact. At the moment, uh, I think I have one fisherman along with myself on board. We have a, a publican, a couple of net makers, and a couple of lads that work on the board of works. Uh, they have a great interest in the lifeboat service. And uh, when the maroons go off, I can guarantee you that this lifeboat will be at sea within seven minutes from the time the maroons go off until we're going out to the harbour. I don't come from a fishing background at all myself. I, I come from a farming background. I, my, my family, my father was a Tipperary man, so I mean, it was all alien to me to come into a seafaring family, you know. So, I mean, the only thing when we got married, Jerry was a fisherman. I would hate to think now that I, at our age of life, at my age of life, that we'd, he would start to take over um, a coxswain of a lifeboat. Do you know what I mean? I think I wouldn't be able to cope at all with the fact that he, we, we have grown up in this environment, um, it's, it makes it easier. But I mean, it, it doesn't always, it, you still fear, you still have a fear, there's always a fear. You just don't, just don't lose that fear, you know, you just try and overcome it. But you're the lad on the back. Well, there was one just uh, on Ireland's eye in 1975 with a local trawler, the Coonamara. He went ashore in the Gale Force 8 to severe gale force, nine westerly winds. There was a strong ebb tide, the tide was falling at the time, and we got alongside. We started to uh, put a rope on board and started towing off in the opposite direction that he had gone on in. And the lifeboat uh, went on, on the ground. So we had to change our tactics and put a rope on his head. And we pulled him, luckily enough, uh, we pulled him ashore. I pulled them off the rocks. Uh, there was a crew of five on board, so we saved the, the boat and the crew of five. What bothers me mostly, I think, is when he, if he had a long night, a long bad night, particularly if it was a false alarm. I mean, we've had those down the years, you know. Unfortunately, they're not so prevalent now, but down the years, and having then to go out on a, an emergency, you know, it's definite call. It's cruel. It really is cruel, you know. To think that they've been out, and it has happened that they've been out all night, and got just back into the harbour and had to go out on something positive, you know. They worry about how the stamina keeps up to it, but of course it's a, it's a, it's a vocation, the lifeboat vocation. The dedication of the lifeboat service, as lined by Hoth Coxon, Jerry McLaughlin, and his wife, isn't always reciprocated. Maritime historian John de Courcy Ireland has 25 years experience of shipping as honorary secretary at Dunlera station. He recalls one particular incident indicative of the attitude of some seafarers. In uh, <coughs> the middle of November a few years ago we got a call at about two o'clock in the morning and it was blowing very strong. Force 7 was recorded at the Bailey and at the quiche, the Dublin pilots thought from the call that they had picked up that a big tanker called the Rio Barima was Greek and that it had a man on board who was sick and needed to be picked off. So uh, I was sceptical about the Greek because of the name of the ship and uh, I came down to the lifeboat station, we got the doctor to come and I got in touch with the ship 
from the lifeboat, and in fact it had a Spanish crew, but it was Liberian. That's to say, it was sailing under a flag of convenience, a very large tanker, much too large to come into Dublin, and it was off the, um, the Kish, about a couple of miles out beyond the Kish, in this raging sea, and we went out to get the man, and uh, Dr. Webb and I climbed on board, which was quite a performance in the heavy seas that were running, and um, Dr. Webb said to me, this man is very, very seriously ill, and if he's not ashore soon, he will be dead. And the captain was arguing with me, I've got to catch the, the tide at Greenock tomorrow morning, so could he not get an injection and be all right? So we had an argument, but eventually we got the poor man into the lifeboat. Well, that was really a very skilled job. The lifeboat men did a marvellous job getting this very... The man was so sick that he was unconscious. In fact, I thought he was dead. They got him down into the lifeboat, and we got back on board, and we <coughs> came back through this very bad weather into Dunleary, and uh, uh, he was brought to St. Michael's Hospital, and he was in intensive care for a long time. I have never heard from that day to this from the owners of the ship or the captain what happened to our second engineer. We had to get in touch with the Spanish embassy to repatriate him. And it is, to my mind, absolutely disgraceful that when Ireland has a smaller merchant navy than Switzerland, Liberia has, I think, the largest merchant navy in the world anonymous, money-grabbing ship owners who behave like that. On the 27th of November, the year 1954, Na has the Irish coast in a mighty seas did roar. She was a 20,000 ton tanker, you know, and uh, the weather was bad enough to break her off in two, you know, two halves. And, um, one half of the men on rescue by a Welsh lifeboat. And we took the remaining seven of the forward half, the other half. In all, we had to spend 27 hours with her before we were finished, you know, so she drifted a long piece in that. It was night time, you see, and Greeks were in her, and uh, we were circular, you see, trying to find out what was set up. and. Uh, they wouldn't come out, you see, because it wouldn't come out for sheltering in uh, some housing in the midships, you know. And they'd uh, have to come out along and down the ladder. So they said they wouldn't come out unless, uh, until something happened, until the morning came, till the daylight came. I was glad because, uh, you know, very difficult in the night when you couldn't see. and. Uh, I was more than glad because when we were circling her during the night, we used to see when she'd heave up, you know, where the ribbon broke apart and all that. The big lumps of steel wagging in and out. You'd want to be very lucky to miss them in the dark, you know. Oh, he sent up a signal 
assemble all his crew. And all who throw the carrigs to the Liberian ship he flew. For the tide it was against him, and the wind that gale force blew. It was fifty miles of hardship for the Rossler lifeboat crew. Oh, before they reached the world concord, it being the end of night. There is no need for to tell of these poor sailors' dreadful plight. Exhausted by the frosty winds and soaked by the ocean spray, says the coxswain, we can't rescue until the dawn of day. Well, we had six of them off right quick, you know. You know what a dummy run is the first time. I said, yeah, we have a sorted out one last time. We had six of them in or maybe in ten minutes, you know. Mm. This last fella, this captain, we had a bit of difficulty getting him in. He'd go in the ladder and he wouldn't turn around, you see. So long as there was somebody up in the ship, they were, we didn't know the language, of course, you know. But, like, we'd give the sign to him, point to turn, to jump, and he was able to tell well, when the last fella, which was the captain, she was nobody to tell him what way to come. So my brother and mine grabs him by the leg and put him out of the ladder. And that ended there. She squeezed it and bang off it. And, there were, and we're all this carry on now, you know, rolling and banging there. <coughs> we um, just had got away from her. She was listed at about 30 degrees, like that. We were going in that way. We just got away from her. And the mighty sea came, you know, and it rolled right down like that. We just had came away from her like that. It was just the coming daylight, like you could see the sea coming out. There were only five minutes in the life, but they were all sick, some unconscious right away. And that's been some terrifying, about a week of terrifying weather them fellas had in that one mm. before she broke. And they were only about five minutes an hour. What the God's sickness and no trouble at all. <laughs> It was early the next morning as the daylight did appear. After a night of fearful hardship for the lawn wreck did it steer. By a great feast of navigation, Cox and Welsh drew by its side, and soon had his poor sailor sailed. On board the Douglas High. I fell over in Hollyhead afterwards, ended up, you know. We went, to, I had to go to Hollyhead with him to land him. And uh, the local lifeboat men were going to look after the bo- our lifeboat so as we could uh, rest up and all, you know. And this, this rich Greek, you know, that owned it, or what, Nicky, no, not, not the fellow that was dead, the other fellow, Nicky. And you know the fellow that calls Nicky, because one of them married on another lad, Nicky. He came down, you see, to see us. And Rhonda said, just tell us this. He gave us each uh, one of those white five-pound notes. <laughs> that, you know, like the big lean notes, I kind of mean. And uh, yeah, then, uh, like we're in the, this uh, hotel, or whatever you call it there, and, they, and we're all going to go asleep, you see, ready to try to get home in the morning. And... Uh, 
came up the local lifeboat was one, so we had to go down to our own boat then to look after her, you see. And we got always blowing a stinker out of the southeast then. And they put out all the lights. I didn't know how they had so well, but they had some idea of it. We put the lads down in the shift the boat up along. I was going up along the wall to tell them where. And I actually ran over the side, split my nose there again, the race fisher side, and was in the water in black darkness. And I'd be a bit frightened like a hobbit. I was going call Carmichael, whom I knew was skipper of the race fishing. He said, I saw so and so there's a man in the water. He says, even a yellow jacket on him, too. <laughs> and I could hear him saying that, you know. <laughs> so, like, uh, when they got aware that it was down there, they did something and got me out, took me up to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I came out of it the next day and came home here then. The story of Dick Walsh, former cox of the Rosslare lifeboat, a veteran of many rescues. To the south is the Dunmore East lifeboat, the only Irish offshore station with a woman crew member, Frances Glody. The coxswain mechanic is Stephen Whittle, like all lifeboat men, always on call. Well, it was a November evening. I think the date was the 25th. And it was a half-hour evening here in Dunmore. I was sitting at home having a cup of tea. And a lady from the next door running and she had been listening on an ordinary old poistate on the 2182 and it was a common thing at that time every house had one of them you know and they all listened out on to the fishing boats at that time and under the stress called on 2182 she ran in she said look she said the lifeboat has wanted over the hook she said so i hadn't my care at that particular time and she said come on she said i'll run you over to the harbour so anyway, we didn't put up my rounds or running and away we go. So it wasn't what we thought a bad evening. But when we got to the middle of the harbour, it was a vicious evening. So we were driving the old boat at that time, and all was in her. And we suddenly fell off of a sea and uh, we got such a lurch and a shake and we had to ease her down from that. Francis, why did you join the lifeboat service? It goes back to five or six years ago. Every time the lifeboat did go out, somebody would have to come to the station here, the pilot station, to speak to the lifeboat when they were out. So I always felt that I'd like to be with them, watching them passing along there, going out to sea. I always felt that I'd like to be with them, to go with them. Were there any difficulties about becoming a member, becoming the first woman actively on a lifeboat crew? Um, Yeah, the inspector of lifeboats was the first person to suggest that I should be made a crew member and then it had to go to pool to the lifeboat headquarters in England and they at first didn't agree with it. So it took, took about six months or more for them to finally agree to it. When you're out on a service, Francis, do you find any difficulties about the type of work or is there any condescension to a woman being on board by the rest of the crew? No, no. They, at the beginning, I don't think they fully accepted me, but they do now. And we do, course, we do exercises every month or every six weeks, so you know everything about the boat. You've got to, everybody has to be able to do everything. What's the main attraction of 
the lifeboat service for you? Basically being able to help people. You, you don't often get the chance of maybe being able to save, help to save somebody's life or be able to revive them. Basically being able to help somebody. Any moments of being frightened at sea? No, I've never, never been afraid. My first experience with bad weather, because I wasn't, I had never experienced it before, did frighten me. Just in a bad, very bad sea. And the lifeboat comes out of the water and slaps back down again. <laughs> Just took a while to get your legs used to it, to know what to expect. We are on call um, 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day. Uh, the only difference with that is the summer stations with the small inflatable lifeboats are only on during the daytime. Uh, the cover on the east and the south coast is uh, better than our declared level. Um, the west coast, of course, is a separate problem. And there is a large gap, a 150-mile gap, between Galway and the Donegal station at Aranmore. Unfortunately, it's beyond the institution's resources to put in another station at this time. It's not quite as simple as that, because very often the disasters that occur happen so quickly that uh, the, the fact that you have an extra lifeboat station wouldn't have had any bearing, lives would not have been saved. For instance, the ski ford disaster off Aaron Moore happened within two miles of the lifeboat station. The lifeboat was there after about, I think, 20 minutes, and yet we still had a loss of life. Tony Corse, inspector in charge of all Irish lifeboats, highlighting the big gap that exists in rescue cover on the west coast. That puts added strains on stations like Arran Island, facing out into the Atlantic. Coley Hernan was coxed there in 1967, when the crew won RNLI awards for the rescue of eight men from a Greek vessel. The Greek ship Prezani was proceeding from Galway to the continent with a cargo of ore from Tina Mines. And the wind at that night was force 12, and maybe stronger than that at times. And out towards Hag's Head, the hatches were stove in by the very heavy seas. We got a call from Valencia Radio that uh, the ship was in distress and uh, wanted immediate assistance. Uh, we again had great trouble getting off the beach. Twice we were driven back from the lifeboat within a few yards of her when the boating boat we were using was swamped. But we finally had a third attempt managed to get aboard. It took us two hours altogether to get aboard the lifeboat. And we went, proceeded into Blackhead where the Rasani was ashore inside Blackhead. We took off the eight crew members of her and brought them into Galway. The men on that occasion were very, very frightened about the lifeboat because of the very, very heavy following sea. Uh, so they were not used to this kind of a boat. They were used to a big ship and they were very frightened. And actually they cowered under the canopy and covered themselves up so they couldn't see the seas. But however, we managed to land them safely at Galway. The coxswain is in total command of the boat. On him rests the decision of when and how to carry out a rescue. 
But as former Valencia Cox Dermot Walsh recalls, the decision of a crew to abandon a ship in trouble may not always be the right one. The conditions were very bad, and uh, we had a bit of problem. We had problems with our radio actually when we left the Valencia Harbour. Uh, we discovered that we lost touch with Valencia Radio, which uh, which was uh, rather unusual because they always keep in touch with us and. Uh, as we went through the basket sound, I remember that uh, we st- we slowed down and uh, Joe Holden, the mechanic, went out to check the aerials and so on and so forth. And uh, we couldn't discover any fault, but we had no contact with the Lynch radio. And uh, we were worried more about the people at home uh, who had lost touch with us than, you know, uh, we had to carry on. We <coughs> intended to carry on, but... Uh, we knew this would happen, that uh, Tom they would be worried. When we reached the, the casualty, she was at anchor, the Armour at anchor. And uh, the weather was really bad. I mean, what uh, the conditions of the sea, well, they were bad. And uh, we we intended, well, we, we thought we would stand by her. You know, she was, she was at anchor. And I remember saying to Joe, uh, I wouldn't like to be taking men off her tonight, you know. And after some time, the 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 skipper of the Anmore decided he would abandon ship, and he requested us to come alongside to get the crew off. So we we, uh, we did we we manoeuvred uh, in and we took them off. I forget now, one by one. I think this, is, this has been told before and described before. My memory is, is 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And unfortunately, we lost one man in the, in the process because uh, as you go in, he he dropped from the ladder and uh, he fell between the lifeboat and, and, and the ship. And there was danger of being squashed, didn't it, too? But fortunately, we, we, we got him out of the water and put him in deck and we tried artificial respiration and so on and so forth mouth to mouth with the, uh, the man, I think he was 18 stone weight and, and he was he was dead on the other stage. But the irony of the whole thing is this, that uh, we we landed the, the survivors, 10 to 11, in Kappa, and the Ardmore stayed where she was, at anchor, for a few days afterwards, before she eventually broke loose and went into to Strand, you know. So we often thought about it's so difficult to to know when to abandon ship and when not to abandon ship. Uh, but we were well pleased to rescue so many, but very grieved to 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 lose one. When you leave the station, like. In this boat, I'm taking six men out with me. Well, they're depending off lot on me for their safety to come back again, like. And when you go to a rescue like that, like, and you're in, you come now to the casualty, like, well, there's a terrible responsibility, like, can I bring these six men back or can I save? So you have an awful lot of responsibility. What am I going to do? You might plan it before you leave the station with the second coxswain, now, the engineer and yourself. You might plan it a little bit of secrets, what you could do, like. But just when you get to the casualty, and see the conditions you're in, then you'll have to make your own judgment. How I can get in, how I can get back out again, which is the best way to save them. 
Everything is down top your shoulders then, like, you take full responsibility then to go in. Or then you might say to yourself, can I save? And if I can save then, what the use is going in? And bring six men in there to lose their lives. So, as you know, it's going to be a big responsibility when you get out there to a casualty. My old man always told me this, and I always went by it, and it was a good thing. You should never go into any hole or any place where you can't see your way out of it. You know what I mean? And, like, if you're going to run a boat off the sea like that, if she's not going, you think she's not going to obey you, don't do it. She'll upset on you, you know? The techniques and methods of rescue, as seen by Cox and Michael Murphy in Yall on the east coast of Cork, and Dick Walsh in Ross Lair. But there's another gap in rescue cover, a Coast Guard watch. When the Irish government continued the link with the RNLI after independence, it didn't do the same with the Coast Guard, and there hasn't been such a service since 1922. Dermot Walsh of Valencia sees this as a major shortcoming. Eyes are needed on the shore as much as they are at sea. We haven't yet realised that we're surrounded by water. The west coast of Ireland, possibly the south coast of Ireland, uh, could easily be manned without any extra cost to the state with a Coast Guard service. Uh, we have the people in the, in the Navy, we have them in the, in the Defence Forces, and a small little training uh, would put 10 or 12 stations around the coast on the main headlands, apart from their vision during daylight, and lights by night, and uh, the VHF. I think that they're an essential part of our uh, coastal service. In, um, in the United Kingdom, it's coordinated by, now by the Coast Guards. Uh, here, it's, it varies very much. Um, the strength of coordination depends very much on the, on the secretaries and, uh, and, the la- and the launching authorities. Uh, but uh, I, I would like to see the Government Sea and Rescue uh, Committee which means with some regularity is making progress, make more progress, because it's only by cooperation. And cooperation is not only a technical cooperation, it's also financial cooperation. Uh, so we, we do not have a continual watch at sea. Uh, the social conditions have changed. And now, if you, when one looks through the services, they're not so much to big ships, well, which are, it happens at time, but they're mostly people who bought yachts and have not bothered to learn how to sail their yachts, have not studied the care that they should have, uh, have go out without life jackets, without flares, and more recently there's been this great increase in uh, wind sailing, surf sailing, uh, which is extremely good sport. But again, if you partake of that sport, and I've been in touch with the International Yachting Union who control it because it's now an Olympic sport, uh, I, I personally feel almost these people should be licensed or, or go through some test before they can wander off because um, all they do is uh, uh, possibly they, they drown themselves uh, which is unfortunate but uh, also they cause a tremendous amount of waste of time because of false alarms and they turn over and no one knows quite what is happening and uh, one of the strangest things is that uh, uh, we, we, we live in fear of the sea but yet we seem to be unconscious of the sea as Lord Killanan, Senior Vice President of the RNLI, says, new demands are being made on the lifeboats. Oil and gas platforms now stand off our coastline. Supertankers are in the shipping lanes, and there's been a huge increase in the number of leisure craft. So the RNLI has developed new boats. 
A fast inshore inflatable is replacing the old wooden boat in Yawl. It's three times as fast, but means big changes for the crew. Most of the old timers that slept the yard like but no present don't think very much of the snow boat like. Cause they said she's like a tie to them, like. Being so used to the big boat, like. And they reckon if a bad night or a bad day, will the small lifeboat do? That's their idea, like the new lifeboat, will she do? But when we've seen her working out, like, and I've been out working with her, with the old lifeboat, and I think she's going to be a good job here on the yard. The Arnolai works because it's voluntarily. There's no question about that. We've, I think, declared that we want to speed up the two remaining lifeboats on the west coast, which will make quite a difference to the response. And um, the, the other one that has been publicly declared is the Rosslare station, which must have a fast boat because it's at such an important position. By and large, lifeboats have a life of 25 years, and then they're normally replaced. Um, the crews like doing what they do, or they're prepared to do what they do um, for whatever reason, and I believe that the rest of the uh, community enjoy supporting them. What love can a person have f uh, for his neighbour better than a lifeboat man would have for his neighbour? He goes out there to save somebody. He doesn't know who it is. He might have never seen them before. So I feel it's just, uh, they don't ask any questions and they don't ask, are you, uh, you Catholic or Protestant? Are you black or white or brown or what you are? They go out because it's, it's certainly, it's not, it is a vocation. It definitely is a vocation. Other than the, you just wouldn't do it unless you had a calling. You must have, and I believe that's all bread in the bone of all those fellas. Very, very few lifeboat men get frightened anyway. They're used to it like all their lives, and they go at any cost and they take the gambling. Usually, nine times out of ten, they always get out of it. When things get right bad, every fella stick to his own post and get on with it. But, uh, as far as we could make out, like with the lifeboat that we have in Baltimore, with good handling, the boat lasts longer than the men. I became secretary of the lifeboat because my predecessor, who was one of the finest mariners this country has ever produced from one of the great marine families of Ireland, the Kierans of Arklow, on the, fifth, on the 7th of November, 1956, came up to see me where I lived and he said, <coughs> I think I'll go out to sea tonight, fishing. And I said to him, but uh, you can't, not with the forecast we've had. So in the end he said, all right, I won't go. But he did, and he was drowned. And the, the sea beat a man who had an extra master's certificate, who had every knowledge of the sea, the sea beat him that night. 